0: Would you remain standing now out of respect for God's word as we look to the scriptures and our sermon text for today, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 10. This is the inspired word of God. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Our only infallible rule for faith And for practice, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. As you are, would you pray once more with me? Our Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word given to us here. We thank you that it is indeed a light and a lamp to us, that it directs us and leads us. We thank you that you have showered us with your love We thank you that that motivates, inspires, and empowers us and is an example for us as well. We thank you for Christ Jesus who died for our sins, for there is no other way by which we might know you and be forgiven. So we give glory to your holy name through him, praying for his sake, amen. Well, there are kind of two main truths that are woven throughout this letter of 1 John that I kind of want to highlight today. One is that God is light. What is light? Light is a a source of direction, of guidance, even of life-giving growth at times. God is light. A second thing that he is, God is love right? Self-giving, sacrificial, seeking out the best for others. God is love. These are both equally true and, and both ought to have an infinitely large impact on who we are and how we live our lives as a result. We see them each highlighted in this passage through a series of of changes that God makes okay God makes certain changes one following from the other first our, he changes our identity from what we once were to a new identity second he changes our destiny of what we will become and third on the basis of those first two he changes our reality of who we are now first of all God changes our identity from what we once were you know it's normal that we would all have certain family traits I'm sure you have them in your family like I have them in mine certain things that just tend to be true of the people within a family In my family, you might not be surprised to find out that one of our family traits is, is Scribners tend to be kind of tall. I, I never growing up thought of myself as being all that tall, to be honest with you, because everybody in my family was just kind of tall. That's just the way it was. I had a, a grandfather who was actually six foot six. Uh, My dad and many of my uncles were all six four, six three, six five. I have one cousin who's actually pushing 6'10". I have female cousins that are around 6 feet tall. We're just a tall family. That's what the Scribners are. We tend to be tall. That's one one family trait. Another family trait, at least amongst the males, is is we we tend to have a a similar hairline. Now my Uncle Jay... He said, no, it's not a receding hairline. He said, it's a distinguished forehead, right? That's, that's what he liked to call it. Which leads me to another family trait. They're not all physical. There's there a Scribner sense of humor, right? It, it's a sense of humor that, that some would say is, is extremely advanced. Those would mostly be Scribners that say that. Um, others would say that it's just not very funny, right? You know, you kind of have different point of views, but there is a specific Scribner humor, right? And so we see that that there are kind of family traits, things that when you look at somebody and, and you see them or you hear them or the way they act, you're like, oh, that's a Scribner. He belongs to that family. As Human beings, there are certain distinguishing characteristics about us as children of Adam. Among these distinguishing characteristics are the fact that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is perfectly holy. He is majestic in his holiness. And we as sinners have lived our lives as an affront to that holiness and And we have offended that holiness. And we stand rightly to be judged on account of that holiness. And John recognizes this, as we see in verse 28. He begins, and now little children. Remember, this is a term of endearment that he uses repeatedly throughout the letter, referring to the church, to those who are actually the children of God, the believers, the Christians, those who are God's people. He says, and now little children, abide in him, remain in him in union with Christ Jesus so that when he appears, you may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You see, Jesus is coming again. This is a fact. He is going to come as the righteous judge. And John realizes that he wants you to realize that you you." cannot stand before a righteous judge on your own, right? Because you have sinned. You have have offended his righteousness. You deserve to be judged. You deserve to be condemned. So do I. It's true of each of us. It is a family characteristic of the children of Adam. And so we have a problem, he says, but what we need to do is abide in him, remain in him. Because if we are joined with Christ Jesus, we need not shrink back in shame, but rather can confidently stand in him. Abide in him. If you know verse 29 says that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And it's interesting he uses the phrase born of him. It's kind of a new phrase. In chapter 2 we've seen different descriptors of Christians they're called those who know God in verse 3 those who are in Christ in verses 5 and 6 those who walk in the light in verses 9 and 10 those who abide in the Father in verse 24 27 and 28 but now in verse 29 those who are born of him it's not an altogether new idea in the Old Testament The Old Testament writers often spoke about God as the father to his people. And that's really the idea that's being talked about here. Not just that he is a natural father, but in a special sense. This idea that Jesus has developed. Remember back in John 3, we looked at this a a few weeks ago uh, with, with Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. He came to Jesus and and was talking to him, and Jesus told him what he tells us all. You must be born again. That is required. He, of course, was not speaking of a physical birth at that point. He was talking about a, a new birth, a spiritual birth, that we who are dead in our sins and trespasses, we who have a heart of stone, we who cannot respond to the call of God because there is no life in us. Need to be born again. We need new life. And this is something none of us can bring about on our own. We need to have this done by God in us so that we might know life in Him. Right? Nicodemus was confused by this. He he didn't understand. He was he was a, a religious leader, even one of the elites. He was one who knew the Bible. He followed all the rules. He did all the things he was supposed to do. He showed up at church when he was supposed to show up at church. He, 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 by all external appearances, looked like he had it all together. And yet Jesus said to him, that all falls short. You must be born again. And Nicodemus didn't understand. And perhaps that's where you are today. Perhaps you've spent your whole life coming to church. where You grew up learning the, the Bible stories and learning those little songs and you've learned the hymns of the church and you've read your Bible and you've, you've come to church week after week. You've shown up serving the church, giving to the church, worshiping with the church, and yet you have no idea what it means to be born again. If that's the case, then I'm glad you're here today. Because... Because that's what we're here to talk about. This idea of being born again. This special birth which can't be brought about by human means. That can't be accomplished by anything that we do. It can't be done by somebody else to us. Some other human being. It can only be done by the work of God. It must be his working and his work alone. And so it is that he works. Ephesians 2 tells us that when we were dead in our sins. God made us alive together in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful gift he has given us and what a special privilege it is because when he made us alive in Christ Jesus, he bound us together with his spirit so that we might be united in Christ, that we might abide in Christ Jesus as he says here And so that we have the privileges and the blessings that Christ Jesus has. We are adopted as children and as co-heirs with Christ Jesus. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. John says this with amazement. It's, It's the same amazement that that we see from the disciples. You remember the story when they're on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus, and they're in the boat, and Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat, and, and they're rolling along, and a storm comes up all of a sudden, and, and they very quickly realize that they have no control, that they are in trouble, that they are in peril. They begin to fear for their lives. These are not inexperienced men nautically. These were fishermen. They, they lived on this on this body of water, but they realized that the storm that had come up was a threatening one, and it it could threaten their very life, and yet Jesus was here asleep in the boat, and they couldn't understand why he could be sleeping when they were paddling and bailing and trying to save themselves, and they cried out to him, Don't you care, Jesus? And he woke up and said to them, You of little faith, He stood up and, with one word, told the wind and the waves, Be still, silent. And just like that, immediately, the wind died down, the waves disappeared, the water was smooth as glass. The disciples had thought they were afraid before that. Now they were really afraid. And what is it that Matthew tells us in Matthew 8? And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? What sort of man is this? They were amazed and in wonder at his marvelous power. And that is the same word that is used here by John in verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. He says you should be amazed at it. Literally the, the word comes from a, a root meaning from a different country. From a foreign country. It's, it's like what kind of love. Like what what nationality of love almost. What in essence, he's saying is, is, where does a love like this come from? Because it's not the kind of love I see around here. Right? He's, he says, this is a foreign love. This is, this is something different. It's not the kind of love I'm used to. Do you marvel at the love of the Father that he has shown you? Do you, do you stand in awe? of the love that he has shown you. Do you sometimes get moved to to tears even at the love that God has shown you? The undeserved, unmerited favor. Far too often, I think we take it for granted, Joel Beakey asks, he says, do you stand in awe of this wonderful love of the Father? Holy wonder and amazement is an important part of Christian experience. And one of the devil's tactics is to dull our sense of wonder. I think he's so right. Right? Satan doesn't need to get us to hate God. He just needs to get us to not really appreciate him. Right? If we begin to not realize how awesome and magnificent and glorious and wonderful and gracious and heap the adjectives on top one after another after another if we we lose sight of how amazing God is the devil's halfway won already so what do we do well if you want to recapture this wonder this all this this passion this amazement then meditate upon the grace of God meditate upon the fact that you are a, a, a rebel an enemy a sinner lost in your sin who who had no way of saving yourself. And God not only in his grace made a way for your salvation, he he actually accomplished your salvation at great cost to himself. Meditate upon Jesus, the Son of God, the the Lamb of God who took the sin of the world upon himself, who died on the cross for your sins and mine. Meditate upon Jesus who, who lived and died for you. Meditate upon the cross where he bore your penalty where he, he took it away, where he purchased your pardon. Meditate upon the word of God which tells us about him, which, which directs us to Christ Jesus on every page and every chapter and every verse and every word pointing us to Christ Jesus our Lord. Meditate upon the word of God so that your heart might burn within you filled With love for him. For he has come from a foreign and far off land. And he has brought his love to you. A unique and different love. An undeserved, unmerited love. a love that is beyond explanation. A love that changes everything. I've known a number of families who have gone to far off lands. To Russia, the Ukraine. They've, they've adopted children, right? They've gone there and found a, children, a child that's in a, an orphanage, right? And that child did nothing to be better than the other children or to, to deserve special favor. But they've gone there at their own cost and, and taken up this child and made this child their own and brought them home and bestowed upon them all the rights of a, ch- a child, of a family member, and, and all the love that a parent would show a child of their own, not so that they would become some kind of pseudo-child, but they have become actual children of these parents. And that is what God has done to us. He has brought us into his family. He has, he has made us his children. Jesus is our older brother. I, I didn't have an older brother growing up, I had a younger brother but not an older one, but I did have an uncle who was eight years older than me, and he actually lived with us, so he was really kind of like an older brother, and, and I of course thought he was really cool, right? And when I went to school and I'd have a teacher that maybe had had him, or I played sports and had a coach who, who had coached him, and they would say something like, boy Pete, you remind me of Dave. Or sometimes they'd even call me Dave, right? You know, I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. Because, because I, I thought Dave was awesome. And if I reminded them of Dave, wow, that was great. Right? You see, I, I wanted to remind them of him. And in the same way, we ought to want and long to remind others of our older brother. Christ Jesus, right? When they look at us, they should see something of Christ Jesus in us. When they look at us, they should be reminded of him. We should bear a certain family resemblance, right? I'm not saying that we do these things to become saved. It's not that somehow we we enter into the family by doing this. No, we, we are already there, and if we are there, we should bear that resemblance. Having been saved. Romans 6 tells us that instead of needing to pay the penalty of our sins on our own, we share in the death of Christ Jesus, and just as he has been raised by the glory of the Father, so too we have been raised, what? To walk in newness of life, right? So this new life that we walk in is a result of us being the children of God. Beloved, verse 2, we are God's children Now he has changed our identity from what we once were. He's also changed our destiny of what we will become. This is the reality that we are God's children. There is still growth that we need to experience. We still need to grow into the people that we are going to be. We are not yet all that we should be. Each of us knows this fact, but one day that will be changed. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. John says something similar here in verse 2 What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Oh dear ones in Christ Jesus. Do you know that you have that hope? That you have that reality? Is that not encouraging? That one day Christ Jesus will appear and you will be made like him no more sinning no more struggling no more failing no more hurting others no more offending God walking in perfect holiness all the time every day do you not long for such a day and does it not fill you with joy to know that that day is coming what joy we have in that fact and that should motivate us that should encourage us that should empower us and we know that it's true because jesus the one who promises to us is faithful and true i remember in high school i had a social studies teacher mr Fitch. he once told us that when we're reading different authors different writers when we hear different speakers one of the important things to do is consider the source consider the source Right? Because if it's somebody who, who is prone to untruth right? Somebody who has a history of dishonesty somebody who maybe has a certain agenda that they're pushing right? We, we need to know that and hear what they say through the filter of that knowledge. Right? And maybe, maybe not be quite so quick to believe what they say if we know them to be a liar. Or if it's somebody that we just don't know anything about, we might want to be a little bit hesitant, right? And kind of, okay. But if it's somebody we know we can trust, somebody who has a track record of believability, somebody who has always been truthful in the past, then we know we can rely upon that person, or at least we think we can. We, we want to, and in Jesus, we have one who has always been faithful and true, even when it has come at great cost to himself. Right? There are some of us who who tell the truth all the time until the kitchen gets really hot. Right? Until the situation gets really hard. And then we might kind of, uh, just in that you know, you understand it it was a really hard situation so I kind of had no, but Jesus when faced with that opportunity still stayed true to his word. Still even though it meant him going to the cross, even though it meant him shedding his own blood, even though it meant his own body being broken for us, he still stayed true to his word, so we have every reason to believe that we can believe him now. We have every reason to believe that he will indeed return just as he came the first time and lived for us and died for us and rose again, just as he had said he would. So we have this hope, not a a, a, a fond wish, but a, a solid expectation, even an assuredness that the day will come when we will be made like him. He has changed our destiny of what we will become. And this future destiny, being changed, should have earth-shaking implications on our reality of who we are now. It's our third area of change. In short, John tells us here our hope should produce holiness. Everyone, verse 3 says, who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Right? He doesn't say we, we make ourselves holy. But rather what he's saying here is that that we live out the holiness that he has bestowed upon us. his forgiveness of our sins has made us holy. Therefore we live out that holiness. It's like the Eunice of Scripture we read earlier. Did you catch what happened when when this woman came before Jesus? and, And what does he say? He says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, right? Everybody walks away because none of them qualified. But you know who did qualify? Jesus! He was without sin. He had every right to pick up a stone and throw it at her there. He could have. He would have been perfectly right. In fact, it was what justice would allow there. Even demand. But instead of casting the stone at her, what did Jesus do? He Stood in front of the stones. He took the arrows. He received the penalty for us all. He paid the price so that we might not need to pay it. And so, what does he say to her? He who could have condemned her says, If none condemns you, neither do I condemn you. But then, this is very important what does he say? Go, and from now on sin no more. Right, there's two things there, right? I don't condemn you, therefore go and sin no more. Right? If, we, if we switch the order of those two statements, the gospel is lost, right? If he says, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you, that's a work righteousness. If he says, go and live a holy life, and if you do that, then you'll be all right with me. The gospel is lost. That's not Christianity. But what he says is, I do not condemn you. You are forgiven in my eyes. I have paid the price. Therefore, go and live a holy life. You see, that's the message of the Bible. That's the message of Christ Jesus. That's what he told her and that's what he tells us and that's what John is saying in this passage and he does so in a series of parallel statements. He uses this parallel structure. Remember back in chapter two when he did this, when he said uh, back in chapter two, he was talking about, he said, I write to you little children and I write to you fathers and I write to you young men and then he said the same thing again. He does that same thing here in chapter 3 verse 4 everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness sin is lawlessness and then in verse 8 he says whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil of the for the devil has been sinning since the beginning i don't think he knew it was going to rhyme like that but that he has he's basically making the point that sin is no small thing we treat it as if it is don't we we say something like Oh, that chocolate cake, it's so delicious, it was just sinful. Ha, ha, ha. We we treat sin lightly. But the reality is sin is not something to be joked about. Verse 8 tells us quite literally sin is satanic. Verse 4 tells us it's lawlessness. It is to... Reject the law. It is is against not just the law of man, but the law of God. God who says not just that we can't exploit people, but we must defend people and protect them from being exploited. God says not only must we not say wrong things about people and spread bad rumors and lies about them, we must actually work to protect the reputation of others. Right? God has a higher law than we have As man, and we violate that. He says that that is of the devil. Right? We don't naturally act the way we should. But verses 5 and 8 give us good news. Verse 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Right? Sin is the work of the devil. And Christ Jesus came to purchase forgiveness for our sins, but also to take away our sin and to destroy our sins so that we would sin no more. He has taken our burden. He carries it away. The psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So how can we abide in sin if we are in Christ Jesus exactly the point made in verse 6 no one who abides in him keeps on sinning no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him and verse 9 no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God if we are the children of God it necessarily changes the way we live day to day it's not that there's absolutely no sin in our lives But what he's saying is that the way we live our lives, if we are in Christ Jesus, is bent in a different direction, right? As Ian Hamilton puts us, the point is not that Christians do not sin, but that sin is no longer the pattern that shapes their lives. It is an unwelcome, unholy intruder, not an honored guest. Your attitude to sin will tell you and others whether your Christian profession is genuine or false. Therefore, we confess our sin to God we we ask him to unmask it and all of its ugliness and deformity in our lives and show us where we are sinful even though that is hard work and it is sometimes painful work to have our sin revealed but we ask God to reveal it to us that we might confess it to him and repent of it turn from it and flee from it because we don't want it to be there we want to walk in holiness for the one who died for our sins and gave us this this alien nature, right? this outside nature, this different nature that's not normal to us. That we might walk in righteousness. Verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Remember what the Gnostic heretics were saying. He said, it doesn't really matter the physical, what we do. We have a higher knowledge. we figured it out. Just hang with us. We're cool. We've got it figured out. Do whatever you want because, you know, sin isn't really a thing. John says, no, there are in essence are two families. There are the children of God and the children of the devil. And the children of God can be known by how they live, as Jesus put it, you will recognize them by their fruits. John says the same thing here. The children of God practice righteousness. They love one another. They walk in the light and they walk in love. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It is what determines the way I go, the way I walk, the way I live. And your love fills me that I might love others as you have loved me, Lord. Right? Right? kind of love that he has, a patient and kind love, a love that does not insist on its own ways, a a love that endures hardship for the sake of others. This is the kind of love we must have if we are God's children. If we are God's children, these things will mark our lives. Therefore, let us ask him in prayer to show us where and how we might show such love to one another. Let us ask him to convict us of our sin that we might walk in repentance and holiness and faithfulness. Let us ask him to lead us in that way that we might truly bear the family resemblance. Let us love him as he first loved us. And in that, may all the glory be forever his. Would you pray with me? Our God, we thank you indeed that you have poured out such grace upon us, such love that was undeserved, such blessing and favor. We pray that you would now help us to meditate upon that love, As we go forth from this place today, Lord, help us to to just be reminded moment by moment, hour by hour, and day by day of your love. Help us to see all that you have done for us. Help us to be amazed as we ought to be at what kind of love you have shown us as your children. Help us to worship you and to give you glory forever and ever. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you rise with me now as we sing hymn number 236, To God Be the Glory.